Well, uh, good afternoon and a very warm welcome to St Paul's uh, Forum. My name is Mark Oakley and I'm the Chancellor here at St Paul's and it's my pleasure to be introducing uh, today's speaker. Uh, Tristan Owine Hughes, I'm delighted to say, is here to speak about his recent book, The Compassion Quest. He's currently the Anglican Chaplain of Cardiff University. He's also a regular voice on BBC Radio 4's Prayer for the Day, as well as Radio 2's Pause for Thought. Tristan's books encourage us always to develop an approach to life that looks beyond our own concerns, and they're always very richly illustrated with references to film and to literature, and uh, of course to human experience. In The Compassion Quest, he argues that our natural state is interconnected harmony with God, with each other and with the world around us. And he teaches that by showing compassion, we move nearer to that harmony and rediscover our reason for being. For Tristan, nothing is secular, and the present moment is always a sacrament. And the spirituality he seeks to foster is therefore very much built on awareness, on acceptance, on connection, and what Reinhold Niebuhr called the relevance of the impossible ideal. Tristan's going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then, of course, there's some time for conversation, questions with you, and, of course, copies of the book will then be on sale should you wish to buy. So would you please warmly welcome Tristan Owine Hughes to the forum. Thank you for those words. I've actually recently, uh, only recently finished as chaplain of Cardiff University. I'm now the director of ordinance for the Diocese of Llandaff in the Church in Wales. And it was wonderful to hear uh, that the Church in Wales was prayed for. Uh, upstairs uh, in the cathedral earlier. So thank you for inviting me. It's a great honour to speak here at St Paul's. Now, a few years back, I was with my young daughter and she said to me, Daddy, I know what the most important thing in life is. I was intrigued at what gem of knowledge I was going to get from a six-year-old. The most important thing in life, she said, is money. Now, I have no idea where she got that from, but I explained to her that for people of faith, love is the most important thing in life, and compassion, uh, love in action, is the most important thing in life. And she nodded, and she seemed to take it in, and a few weeks later, my whole family were visiting our local bishop, and the kids had been so well-behaved. Uh, then, as we were leaving, my daughter turned to the bishop, and she said, Mr. Bishop, I know what the most important thing in life is. I held my breath. I had no idea what she was going to say. The most important thing in life, she said, is love. I know, I was so proud of her. And then she added, and the second most important thing in life is money. In my book, The Compassion Quest, I argue that compassion is the holy grail for which we should be searching. That compassion is the one thing that we should be teaching to our children and to our grandchildren. That compassion is the one thing that we should all be striving to practice in our daily lives with how we deal with each other, how we deal with those in other countries, with other living things and with the environment around us. Now theoretically, 
with regards to faith, compassion plays a central role in the major religions. In Islam, the compassionate one is the second of the 99 names of God. In the Jewish tradition, God is not only compassionate, but actually is compassion. And Buddhism, of course, teaches that compassion is the one thing above everything else that can lead to enlightenment. In the Christian tradition, we have a person, Jesus Christ, who acts as a blueprint for a radical model of what compassion should look like in our lives. Outside of faith also, our world has long regarded compassion as valuable, as worthwhile. But research has shown that people of faith and people of no faith are often lacking in compassion. And many are becoming suspicious of the whole concept of compassion. A year or two back, compassion was the latest buzzword, with David Cameron urging the NHS to hire nurses on the basis of having compassion as a vocation and not just academic qualifications. Increasingly, though, questions are now being raised as to whether this is all rather idealistic and whether it whether it's possible, whether it's desirable, whether it's even healthy for individuals to be driven by compassion. Those who work directly with trauma victims are being diagnosed with so-called compassion fatigue, while all of us are becoming somewhat desensitized to suffering as we're bombarded with images and stories of tragedy in the media. As Karl Ove Knausgaard puts it in the first volume of his international best-selling series, My Struggle, caught on camera, transmitted to one of thousands of satellites orbiting the Earth, and broadcast on TV sets around the world from where it slips into our consciousness as yet another picture of death or dying, these images have no weight, no depth, no time, no place, and nor do they have any connection to the bodies that spawned them. They are nowhere and everywhere. Most of them just pass through us and are gone. I would suggest, though, there are three reasons why we as individuals and as a society sometimes struggle to show compassion. Firstly, we have a deficient and inadequate concept of what compassion actually is. Secondly, we don't give enough time to be truly compassionate. And thirdly, there's a need to teach ourselves and others to foster an inclination towards compassionate living. So the three areas I'd like to explore now are understanding, time and inclination. And I'll begin with our understanding of what compassion actually is and how our faith contributes to the understanding of that concept. I was recently interviewed about compassion on the BBC Welsh language radio station, Radio Cymru. And before the air, before we went on air, I had a long conversation with the interviewer about the word compassion and what it actually was in Welsh. The problem is that we Welsh have no direct translation for the word compassion. We have words for pity, charity, sympathy, empathy, mercy, but no direct word for compassion. 
English are more fortunate. The English word compassion is the perfect word for expressing this concept. The word derives from the Latin words cum and pati, meaning to suffer with, to suffer with. In other words, when we have compassion on someone, we suffer alongside them. We truly feel their suffering. The father of concentration camp survivor, Corrie ten Boom, was a Dutch reformed Christian. But when the Jews began to be persecuted, he lined up with his Jewish neighbours, and like them, he received a star of David to wear. Now that's an extreme example, but that's true compassion. A desire to stand alongside suffering people so they can truly, so he could truly tell them he knew what it felt like to go through their persecution, through their suffering. Now the Hebrew word for compassion is also revealing. In the Jewish scriptures, the most frequent word that can be translated compassion is rachamim. The word is related to the Hebrew term for womb, rechem. So that intimates that our compassion for those around us should reflect intimate, familial bonds. The same link is made with the Arabic words for compassion, rama, and womb, raem. In other words, the archetype for compassion is fraternal. We all view each other as brothers and sisters, and we treat people as if they are our brothers and sisters. This is what the French Cistercian monk Charles de Foucault referred to as the universal brotherhood, the universal brotherhood, that we treat others as if they had shared the same womb as we had, as if they were our own flesh and blood. And that's a huge challenge to all of us who want to follow the path of compassion. We're called to treat others as if we are related to them. As Archbishop Desmond Tutu put it, I hope we can accept a wonderful truth. We are family. We are family. If we could get to believe this, we would realise that care about the other is not really altruistic, but it's the best form of self-interest. Yet in reality, most of us are very happy dwelling in our non-compassionate and self-centred self, which will always think of itself in opposition to other people. As a popular humorous bumper sticker petitions God, if you can't help me lose weight, Lord, then please let my friends gain weight. <laughs> Such an attitude is the polar opposite to compassion and is related to what the Germans called, call Schadenfreude, the pleasure at another person's pain. True compassion is based on kinship, on friendship, on togetherness, on a desire to stand alongside the other in all his or her experiences, whether painful or joyful. We're not made either to suffer or to celebrate alone, but rather for communion at both the highs and the lows of our life journeys.
An old German proverb sums it up this way. A sorrow shared is a sorrow halved. A joy shared is a joy doubled. Now the complicated doctrine of the Trinity is also centred on this understanding of relationship. The Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit share the joys of each other. With the Greek word perichoresis used by theologians to describe how they share each other's lives. And it literally means that they dance around each other. And as someone who's married to a choreographer, I know how joyful dance can be. But the members of the Trinity also share each other's suffering. The crucifixion, in the words of theologian Jürgen Moltmann, was an event between God and God. The Son suffers pain and death. The Father grieves as he loses the Son. And the Spirit is the suffering bond between them that ensures that the event is life-giving in the future. This theological emphasis on God as mutual relationship is one of the principal reasons why the Christian faith can breed compassion and has at times down the centuries been at the forefront of significant, compassionate societal change, including, of course, the abolition of slavery, prison reform and social reform. So relationship, relationship is at the heart of our faith's theological teaching. And compassion is rooted in that relationship, in that solidarity with each other. And that's something that's very different from empathy. We don't simply feel empathetic when a family member is suffering or in pain. Rather, the suffering touches the core of our being. The New Testament uses two different Greek words for compassion. The first word is elio, elio, which is primarily used for those who appeal to Jesus for healing. The second word, splanknitsomai, expresses a deeper, a more passionate form of compassion and is used for Jesus' own reaction to those who are pleading for healing. In modern parlance, it can be literally translated to be moved in one's guts. Jesus, therefore, responds to those who plea for basic compassion, elio, with a compassion that's intimate, with a compassion that's intense, splanknitsomai. The pain and suffering of others engenders not merely superficial sympathy in Jesus, but rather it affects him to the very core of his being. We as Christians hold that Jesus was compassion incarnate, compassion made flesh, and it's this deep-seated compassion that led him to do something about suffering when he saw it in people. A few years back, Philip Pullman, the agnostic author, published his apocryphal retelling of Jesus' life, The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. And that book vividly expresses the scandal of what it means to be compassionate, radical compassion. 
Jesus is presented as having a twin brother, simply called Christ. And Christ follows him around the Palestinian countryside, interpreting his teachings and his actions. And he's shocked at Jesus' teaching about God's compassion, about God's grace. The parables Jesus tells, the Good Samaritan, Prodigal Son, the Lost Sheep, the Great Feast, they described a, a universal love that's arbitrary, that's undeserved, almost like a lottery. And the twin brother believes that this is simply a horrible way of viewing love. And Jesus' lifestyle reflects this unfair concept of love. He mixes with undesirables like tax collectors and prostitutes. And in Pullman's tale, the whole situation seriously disturbs the scoundrel Christ. And so he completely rejects his twin brother as naive and delusional. But it's that very attitude that's at the crux of both Jesus' teachings and actions, an uncompromising, a self-giving, an unconditional compassion that transcends religious differences, transcends political differences or ethnic differences. And that's really different from mercy. It's really different from pity or charity. And often our culture, our media, will confuse pity and charity with compassion. Charity, though, serves to distance ourselves from those whom we help. While responding to the basic needs of the so-called less fortunate is necessary and is right, charity still upholds a system that consolidates an us-and-them worldview. As even the term less fortunate implies, we need to move beyond charity. It suggests a, a beggar's and benefactor's mode of meeting needs. We need to move beyond that to a fundamentally new way of viewing our neighbours and of viewing the world around us. It's the same with pity. Pity also implies a separateness from the other. The whole process of pitying places us in a position of power, of superiority, of strength, as we implicitly contrast ourselves with the weaknesses of the other person. Tom Shakespeare, a campaigner for disability rights, reveals that his fellow activists are suspicious of compassion because it so often reveals itself as pity. And even the word pity has close links to words that will send shivers down the spines of many people these days, words like piety or pious. So different to when we show pity, compassion does not lead us to act as if we know better than the other person. Compassion simply leads us to feel the suffering of another as if it were our own. We willingly enter the places of pain in people's lives. As the epistle to the Hebrews puts it, remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourself were suffering. 
A friend of mine recently declared that he'd seen so much suffering on the news and in charity appeals that he was bordering on compassion fatigue. Now, many people today may have charity fatigue, they may have pity fatigue, but most people don't have compassion fatigue because most people haven't actually grasped what compassion is and what it really means. To adapt G.K. Chesterton's famous words, compassion has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. So moving on from our understanding of compassion, another reason why we as individuals and as a society are often lacking in compassion is that we lack time to give to others. Most people would agree that love should be spelled T-I-M-E and compassion likewise requires time. Most of us live such hectic lives that we fail to give ourselves any chance to be truly compassionate. As we juggle our busy schedules, we buy into the prevailing cultural attitude that work has to be demonstrable, quantifiable and constant. Even the phrase multitasking has become a, a badge of honour to be worn proudly in the overflow of our lives. The oft-inebriated actor Richard Harris is said to have been asked by a policeman why he was lying in the middle of a street in London at three in the morning. Well, came his apocryphal answer, I've heard the world spins around, so I thought if I stay here long enough, my house will go past. <laughs> Somehow, and it never is easy, we need to find moments of pause in our hectic schedules to allow the world to spin around us and to give people the time, the attention, that, compa that compassion demands. In the book of Job in the Old Testament, Job loses his wealth, he loses his family, and finally he loses his physical health. And on hearing of his misfortune, three of his friends go to him with the aim of standing alongside and comforting his distraught, their distraught friend. And on arriving, they empathise with his lot, and they enter his suffering in a way that was typical of Israelite culture of the time, by weeping, by tearing their clothing, and by throwing dust on themselves. They then sit with him in silence for a whole week. As the book of Job puts it, they saw that his suffering was very great. Their very presence was their compassion. And of course, if that had been the end of the story, it might have been an ideal model for us of what compassion should be, albeit one rooted in the cultural practices of the ancient Near East. Unfortunately, for the next 35 chapters of Job, these friends ruin it all by offering their empty, critical, patronising opinions on Job's predicament. Too often, 
are we ourselves drawn to offer advice, to offer counsel when we see someone suffering? Compassion simply calls us to be there for somebody when they're in need. I've got a small box at home stuffed with scribbled notes and business cards that have been handed to me since my own diagnosis of a degenerative spinal condition. They contain the names and phone numbers of dozens of osteopaths and physiotherapists and chiropractors and acupuncturists and Reiki specialists and they've been given to me down the years by friends and colleagues and even strangers on the train who notice that I have to get up and walk around the carriage at every opportunity. Now, those who handed me those contact details had a real desire to bring relief to my pain. And as such, their gestures were kindly and loving. Too often, though, many of us fail to recognise that mere kindness is not good enough. Those suffering need something very different from advice. The aspiration to mend, to cure, is clearly well-meaning, but the real need of people who are suffering is a compassionate giving of time and attention. Of course, it's not always the case of giving ourselves enough time to show compassion. For those of us in the caring professions, our lack of time is often the result of expectations on us from outside rather than our, our own self-interest. Many healthcare professionals, for example, are overworked, are under-resourced, and so become ground down and demotivated. My brother-in-law was hospitalised a few years back after a motorcycle crash, and he was put on a ward where he knew many of the nurses, having worked there as a doctor for a number of years. And one morning, a nurse he knew well sat on his bed and burst into tears and said, I just can't take it anymore. Every morning I get into work and I have to ask myself the same question. Who can I get away with neglecting today? Who can I get away with neglecting today? With increasing cuts in staff, funding, in facilities, Many in the caring professions are left with too little time to carry out truly compassionate care. Disability campaigner Tom Shakespeare points out that medicine is becoming more and more centred on efficiency and on finance. And he quotes one consultant who told a medical student, I find the ward round goes much faster if you don't talk to the patients. Finally, alongside developing our understanding of compassion and finding time to show compassion, we also need an inclination to show compassion. In other words, we need to foster the desire for us to be compassionate in the first place. A friend of mine's brother, who is a, an actor in the States, has been drafted into hospitals over there to teach doctors and surgeons how to act compassionately. 
Not how to be compassionate, but how to act compassionately. And it reminds me of the comedian John Burns's words, the most important thing is sincerity. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> My friend's brother noticed that in some hospitals, it was the same doctors returning year after year to be trained. In reality, of course, we can't coerce people to be compassionate. Compassion has to be fostered, has to be nurtured. We should be championing it to children and teaching it in our schools above the desire for success, above the desire for achievement. Theologian and medic Albert Schweitzer argued that children have a basic capacity for compassion. And that then needs to be nurtured for it to grow, for it to thrive. And even if it hasn't been taught at an early age, there can be little dispute that compassion can be caught. A compassionate ethos at a workplace can have such an impact, even on individuals who on the face of it seem to lack empathy. We need, therefore, to create work environments where compassion is given every opportunity to flourish. As the example of colleagues and friends can encourage, can excite others to imitate their compassion. Andy Bradley, the founder and director of Frameworks for Change, which runs training courses to teach compassion to healthcare workers, suggests that all involved in the giving of care should meet in groups in a safe space each month to share stories of compassion and to reflect on the compassionate care that they've witnessed. Acts of compassion can, after all, produce a snowball effect as people pay it forward, as the film of that name put it. The more we give, the more others, and often ourselves, will receive in return. Individuals, communities, societies are enlivened and brought hope through this process of compassion. Like ripples on a pond, our compassion can have far-reaching effects on far more people than we realise. As Dr Aziz claimed in E.M. Forster's A Passage to India, if money comes, money goes. If money stays, death comes. Andy Bradley, recently voted as one of the uh, 50 young radicals in Britain by the Observer newspaper, also suggests that we have to consider the pervasive impact of us being compassionate on our own lives. Suffering with people is not without cost. When I was a university chaplain, I remember a student opening up to me about distressing incidences in her past. And on her way out of the chaplaincy, she turned to me, she thanked me, and she said these words, I feel so much better after offloading, but now you have in you what I went through. How are you supposed to cope with that? Suffering with the other is costly on the individual showing compassion. It's been argued by Nicholas Wolterstorff that the reason God tells Moses 
that he cannot see him and live is that a human would not be able to cope with seeing a face that's witnessed life's immeasurable suffering. The last words of the student to me as she left the chaplaincy were, how can you go back to living your everyday life after hearing my story? And it's a question that all of us who live out compassion need to take seriously. We also, though, need to guard ourselves from unhealthy ways of divorcing ourselves from the suffering we witness. Charlotte Scott, a former producer on daily TV talk shows such as Trisha, Jeremy Kyle and Jerry Springer, describes how her and her colleagues would detach themselves from the distress, from the tragedy which we, with which they were dealing with every day. We started to laugh at these people, she told journalist John Ronson. All day long, it was the only way that we could cope. At first, she said they would laugh at phone calls. If they had a speech impediment, that would be brilliant, she, she explained. We'd put them on loudspeaker and gathered round and laughed and laughed. Eventually, they ended up retiring to the pub at the end of their working day to laugh further at the problems of their guests. That is the opposite of compassion. Instead of seeing our familial tie, tie, ties with other people, we view ourselves as completely different from the other by removing ourselves from their misfortunes and dehumanising them. So, in opening up to suffering of others through compassion, we need to face the paradox of guarding ourselves from unhealthy ways of coping, while taking seriously the fact that unbridled compassion can lead to harm to us. And part of this call to compassion is therefore to show compassion to ourselves. And that's a recognition that some measure of objectivity is required. Compassion, in other words, needs to be allied with wisdom. As the Eastern proverb puts it, love is a bird with two wings. One wing is compassion, the other wing is wisdom. If either wing is broken, the bird cannot fly. Author Cindy Wigglesworth argues that compassion is not compassion without wisdom. She writes, I feel what you feel and it doesn't overwhelm my circuits. My wisdom circuits remain active and I modulate my emotional state. I act skillfully to relieve suffering where I can or to sit with people who just need accompaniment in their pain or in their joy. Compassion towards ourselves is very much part of that wisdom. As the work of psychologist Paul Gilbert, who pioneered compassion-focused therapy, has shown us, it's important that we are never hard on ourselves, even when we fail to reach the standard of compassion uh, towards which we strive. It's also imperative that we take space and time to recharge our emotional batteries. Care, kindness, 
and forgiveness towards ourselves is very much part of the compassionate ideal. Whereas empathy is specific to a time and to a place, compassion is a way of being, not just a way of acting. Compassion is universal and must never be exclusive. It includes care and kindness towards ourselves, alongside all people, whatever their social background, ethnicity, sexuality or faith, and also towards the, the natural world, including non-human life and the environment around us. So to conclude, understanding time and inclination should be at the heart of our quest for compassion in our lives. And this quest will lead us to embrace daily a familial, universal compassion, encompassing all living things. And that will have huge consequences on how we view ourselves, how we treat our friends, our neighbours, strangers, how we consider the marginalised and oppressed in our own country, how we regard those in other countries, how we care for animals and other living things, and how we deal with the environment. The Werner Herzog film, Into the Abyss, begins with Reverend Richard Lopez, chaplain to death row in Texas, speaking about his role standing alongside those sentenced to death. He describes his role as showing the presence of a merciful and caring God to the condemned, sometimes in moments of joy, but largely in their moments of despair and suffering. If they allow him, he will even, he will even gently hold the ankle of a prisoner who's been given the lethal injection and does so until death occurs. Many of these young men have committed hideous crimes, as the film goes on to show. But Lopez is insistent on God's love for each and every one of those prodigal sons. He's interviewed in front of hundreds of graves of those who've been executed, none of which have names on them, only numbers. And in his concluding words, spoken only an hour before another execution, he powerfully summarises the challenge of a universal and radical compassion. He describes his thoughts when he sometimes needs to brake sharply in his golf cart to avoid squirrels crossing the path. And he says these words as tears start to fall down his cheek. I stop and I acknowledge life. Life, the thing God has created. If I wouldn't have stopped, I could have run over one of these squirrels. Their life would have ended. And that reminds me about many people I've been with on their last breath of life. And due to bad choices and mistakes, their life is taken away in a moment. So life is precious, whether it's a squirrel or a human being. So I will sometimes meditate on that experience, make a little noise, and the squirrels will take off and continue their lives. But I cannot do that for someone on the gurney. I cannot stop 
the process for them. But I wish I could. Thank you. I'm going to allow uh, Tristan a, a little bit of a rest uh, in his uh, seat before he has to stand up again and, uh, and speak. And I just wonder if we could have two or three minutes just to turn to our neighbour, just to uh, give our first reactions to what we've just heard. Maybe something um, that grabbed our attention, maybe something that made us a bit uncomfortable or we didn't understand. Could we just, just a couple of minutes to give him a bit of a, a break and then it might help you form a question uh, or two and, and show your compassion to him, of course, in a, in a nice question. Uh, but uh, let's just uh, break off for a couple of minutes with our neighbour. I hope that that may have generated one or two uh, questions. If not, it's going to be terribly embarrassing. Uh, there's one there, good. Yes. I'd like to ask a question about this line between charity and compassion. As I travelled on the train to get here today, I've met four posters asking for help for mentally ill and children in Africa and things like that. And I find these constant demands to have charity and give money for these people actually freezes me up and probably mm. stops me actually feeling the compassion I ought to feel. Yeah. Um, and I think compassion is very much linked, as well as the time, as to your imagination. And each of these pictures puts you know, imaginary picture in my mind of, of how people are suffering, but yet, what can I do? I can't do anything directly personal. And the demand for money, you know, how many people can I give to? So yeah. how do we deal with that borderline in charity and compassion? Now, it's, a, it's a very good question. And, uh, and it's really challenging, because charity is important. Um, and ideally, if everyone was compassionate, charity might not be needed. But the reality is, um, compassion isn't at the point in people's hearts. It's not uh, the main thing they firstly think about. And so charity is necessary. And it was wonderful this morning. Um, we had the, the half marathon in Cardiff. So I'm missing that. It goes past uh, our vicarage, the, all these people. Try. And it's great to see that so many people are running for uh, great causes. Um, but there is a point that charity can only go so far. Um, and actually, we need a whole sea change in our attitude towards the other. Uh, not only other people, but the world around us, the environment, uh, and so on. And that's where uh, compassion takes off, where charity can't get anywhere close to. Because uh, charity still has that uh, seeing someone as less, as I said in the talk, less fortunate uh, than us, rather than seeing someone as our brother or sister. But we can't sit down with those people, can we? No. No, exactly. So, so compassion just has to die. Yeah. Well, as Christians, of course, we, we have prayer as well. Um, and so we can pray for others as well as practically do things for others. So compassionate, compassion, I think, takes your whole life once you're, you're, you're sold on it. Um, and it goes into your prayer, it goes into your actions, uh, and it's just recognising uh, that we're, we're all intimately connected. Uh, and so we do everything we can, even if they're not on our doorstep, uh, to, to, for our, um, our, our brothers and sisters. But you are right, it's not easy um, when we're at home uh, in, in our, the four walls of our house 
um, many thousands of miles away from people who are, are truly suffering. Uh, and we're very blessed that people do take, um, uh, take the initiative and go out to places uh, that, that are required. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the limits of Christian compassion. Compassion in its sort of broadest sense, rather than, compa rather than compassionate acts. And I wondered if you ever wrestle with, um, with these boundaries of Christian compassion. Um, I was reading some excerpts from the daily newspaper to an elderly lady before I came out. And there are people in the press at the moment to whom nobody would normally extend any compassion at all because you talk about compassion for the suffering and I'm wondering if there is any scope within Christian compassion for compassion for the people who are causing such suffering. Hmm. So that's actually a very difficult compassion to yeah. find. And I look at some of the people in the press at the moment and I think I don't have an ounce of compassion hmm. for you because you're wicked. But yeah. as a Christian, am I meant to extend my boundaries of compassion towards the wicked people who are doing terrible things? And do you find it difficult to extend your boundaries towards them? Yeah. Well? Tristan, can I just repeat a bit of that in case people at the back couldn't hear? It's a question about the boundaries of Christian compassion, that uh, there's a lot of talk about us being compassionate to the suffering, mm -hmm. uh, but less uh, about compassion to those who are, who are uh, creating the suffering. Uh, and how, as a Christian, you, you deal with that? For example, the man yeah. keeps appearing in photographs with the balaclava on, who's mm. doing such wicked things to people. It's a, a great question. It's something that I wrestle with daily, probably. It's something I, I'm always thinking about. Um, I was invited uh, earlier last year uh, to um, Hay in the Park, which is part of the Hay, Hay on Y Festival, uh, to talk about my books. And I was very excited about being invited to this. I thought I was going to a, uh, a lovely green lush park. Uh, in fact, it was Hay's offshoot in Park Prison in Bridgend, which is outside Cardiff. And so I went along to that uh, to talk about compassion, um, to talk about um, standing alongside the other, and a few minutes before I was to give my talk, uh, the chaplain there whispered to me the kind of crimes uh, the people who were coming in had done. And it really immediately brought it to the fore, that question, you know, now I'm challenged. It's very easy to stand up and say, oh, you should be compassionate to everything and everyone. But actually, it was a huge challenge to me. As someone with, with young children and knowing these people were coming in, I, was, I really, really had to go beyond my gut reaction, which was um, hate, uh, to actually think, no, you know, they are still my brothers and sisters, even though I'm finding it hard to show that compassion. Um, so yes, I agree, it's a challenge that we're all faced with um, showing. And the reality is, if someone's not going to show people compassion, if, if, sorry, if Christians aren't going to show someone compassion, then no one is going to show compassion. Uh, and so we have uh, people almost demonised by the secular media for what they've done. Uh, and what they've done it can be awful and terrible. And of course we should be standing alongside the victim. But actually, we also need to be trying to understand why these people are doing these kind of things. And that's part of 
the compassion and standing alongside. I haven't had the backgrounds they've had, the upbringings they've had. So it's very, the first thing I do is try not to judge, even though we naturally do uh, judge. But it's, it's a really, really challenging question. Thank you. Can we be going out to ISIS and killing people compassionately, mm. effectively? Do is that? No. Again, yes, it's a, a challenging question. Um, in my book, I argue that actually, by seeing someone and others as our brothers and sisters, uh, as if we would share, as if we had shared the same womb as them. Um, we're actually looking at ourselves when we look at others. And it, it's a huge challenge uh, to questions of conflict and war. Um, there was a 60s song, wasn't there, by, I think it was Joan Byers, The Universal Soldier. Um, and that, that sums it up. We, you know, we're, we're actually, uh, even in war, let alone civilians who might be um, hurt or killed, uh, through conflict and, uh, and war, uh, but even with the soldiers themselves uh, are our brothers and sisters. Uh, and so, yes, it, it's, it's, it's something that we need to really ask ourselves as far as uh, any political moves for, uh, for, for conflict uh, or to, to help others uh, by uh, means of war. So, yes, definitely. So where, where do you sit on it? I'm really, I, I have the clue. I'm interested in an expert yeah. view. Yeah. No, I mean, first thing, I wouldn't say uh, I was an expert in any way on that. And that's, you know, it is, it, it's, it's, a, it's something that, that, again, I'm challenged by. You know, my, at heart, I'd like to say I, I, I'm a pacifist. Uh, but of course, then it throws so many other questions out. I mean, I do not like to see us... Um, killing other people, and especially when there is going to be collateral damage, especially when other uh, civilians are going to be hurt and killed. Um, but it is a challenge. You know, that, you know, what point do we get that we have to help others in that way? And it's it's a question that I haven't come to a conclusion about. So sorry, I can't give a <laughs> a yes or a no. But yes, but it is a challenge. But it, my heart does tell me that we shouldn't, you know, that, that war is, is a terrible, terrible thing and weapons are terrible things. Yes. Um, do you think that with uh, the age of technology, when I say about technology, with um, email, email, smartphones, uh, a lot of our young children now becoming um, computer geeks, I suppose, more than my own, that human compassion, uh, whether it's through children or adults, can be lost in technology. Mm. Um, uh, uh, you know, cyberbullying, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. um, when we're trying to read the scripture, we lose human compassion on the train. Someone's, you know, focused on their iPad or their uh, smartphone, travelling. So human compassion can be lost through the lack of verbal, intimate. Or, or not intimate but, face-to-face -face communication. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, I, I agree completely. It's um, compassion at its core is to do with relationship. And 
increasingly, and I'm someone who's, uh, those of you who know me here, know that I'm a big fan of uh, social media, but social media does take us into ourselves. Uh, and the connection and relationships we're making on social media are very different than face-to-face -face connections with others. I think compassion can only go so far on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I think compassion is something to do with uh, connecting with the other, recognising uh, a sense of solidarity and unity with the other, whereas quite often technology takes us away from connecting with others uh, and takes us into ourselves. Um, so, so I would agree completely, yes. And um, can I just refer to some writing by Charles Fraser yesterday where he was despairing at the state of contemporary politicians and regarding compassion and politics generally. Yeah. Did you view, do you have a view that the church has a role trying to uh, help form views on compassion and contemporary policies and politicians as they portray it? Uh, I, I read the, the article from Charles Fraser and I, I, I would agree completely the church should be. Um, taking uh, a lead, not just a role, uh, especially in this, uh, in uh, as far as compassion is concerned. And I hope you got something of that from my paper, in the sense that faith has something to offer in this field, uh, and it's shown by the fact that uh, the NHS uh, and quite often so-called secular uh, agencies and, and groups uh, are reticent to, to ask people of faith to come in and talk about things. But, but I have been, I've been to a, quite a few NHS uh, conferences where I've been invited in to speak on compassion. Uh, and there seems to be, uh, at first, uh, a reluctance to listen to someone uh, who comes from a faith angle. But once the realisation is that actually, even the word compassion and the words we can look at to see what compassion actually is, uh, can be uh, can be taught so much from uh, fr from the, the major world faiths. Um, so yes, I, I think the church needs to be at the forefront of of breaking down the walls of um, of of their of their places of worship. Not literally, of course, um, but going out and showing what compassion is, and showing that we're actually Christianity. Uh, and many of the other faiths, but Christianity is, is a faith of compassion more than anything else. It's a faith of love, um, and, and that needs to be shown. Yeah. I'm sorry I have to bring this to the end. I've got a feeling that we could, we could go on for quite a while uh, with very important themes. Uh, however, we do have to uh, finish at two, so... Uh, I just want to say a couple of things, if I may. The first is, you gave us such a, a wealth of, of thoughts to carry away with us today. I was particularly struck, of course, by the connection to the Hebrew word for compassion, to, to the word for womb, um, this place that uh, might be nurturing and giving birth to something which we're not always familiar with. Uh, and you spelt out the importance of understanding and time and inclination and, of course, that lovely uh, connection to wisdom. But I think what I would just like to thank you for particularly today are three things. The first is that listening to you, I've come away with a very strong sense, renewed, of, of life is precious. And I think you've uh, communicated that very, very powerfully and beautifully. 
and that because it's precious, you have to listen to your life and listen to other people's lives uh, in order to appreciate just how precious it is. So thank you for that. The second thing is um, something about your own delivery and who you are, um, the honesty that you've brought here today, uh, and also dealing with the questions. We're living in this Google world where, you know, everybody's supposed to find an easy answer to press of a button. Actually, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I don't know, and still to keep principles uh, in view as you try and work out how they're to be translated. And, and thank you for that. And lastly, that challenge that uh, we've all got now, uh, that if Christians aren't going to show compassion, just who will? Thank you. <laughs>